There are two communities of people in this world. The minority community comprises the people of God. The majority community comprises the kingdom of man. Every human being is born into the kingdom of man in a state of spiritual alienation from God. We read in Romans chapter 3, in support of that point, that it stands written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good, not even one. Yet in His mercy and grace, God calls a people to leave the kingdom of man and to enter the kingdom of God. This distinguishing of a community of people that belongs to God is not warmly received in man's kingdom. The history of the world's community includes the routine oppression of God's community. And in the book of Genesis, God reveals to us that this one-directional hostility has ancient roots and it has cosmic foundations. We know this verse well, but we read in chapter 3 and verse 15 that God says to the serpent following the sin of Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. A deliverer from sin's curse will descend from the godly offspring to crush Satan's head. But until that act is finalized, the people of the serpent, that is the kingdom of man or this world as we refer to it, will oppress the people of God. This prophecy is here in this early stage of Revelation to prepare God's people for this oppression, for this resistance. And it's no mistake as we come to Genesis chapter 4 that we read of Cain and Abel. And with Cain who brings a sacrifice that does not please the heart of God, he takes the life of Abel whose sacrifice does please God. There will be a hostility between these people, a one-directional oppression, and it begins right in Genesis 4. As Cain murders Abel, Seth replaces him. And as the two lines of people develop in the text of Genesis, we come then to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1, where the Lord says to Abram, calls him to leave his country and his people and his father's household, and says in Genesis 12 and verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise passes to Isaac and to Jacob and to Jacob's 12 sons. And I think then, if we are reading Genesis thoughtfully, this means that we should anticipate that Satan's rage will be unleashed against Abraham's offspring. And it is. And what we learn in the process is that the power and glory of God and the splendor of His love is revealed in the midst of oppression. God loves His people. He loves us with an infinite and perfect love. This is no cheap and sentimental love. It's no love that's detached from God's anger and wrath. It's a love, in fact, that is made 
clear to us by His anger and His wrath. His love is not sentimental and cheap. It is a love that shows itself against the backdrop of severe oppression. When Satan oppresses, God blesses. He blesses His people and He reveals His glory to them in the midst of oppression. This is good news for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not very good news for those of us that are intoxicated by this world, that are numbed to the glories of God because we're so close to the world in which we live. But for those who have a sense of their identity, that they are the people of God, that we are part of an oppressed people, that we are despised, that we are an extreme minority as a community, this is good news. Because we have brothers and sisters in Christ throughout this world who are being physically oppressed today. And we know that we identify with them, not simply in our own context, in our own situation, which is largely free of physical oppression, but we identify with them as a people and we bear up their suffering with them. And so it is good news to us and to those of us who do deal with elements of oppression in our life for Christ. It is good news. We have this confidence in our God that He will never leave us or forsake us. That nothing can separate us from His love. That God will always keep all of His purposes. And all of His promises will be fulfilled. When the world oppresses, God blesses His people. We find this confidence in the text of Scripture from beginning to end. But we read of it in this initial way in the book of Genesis and as we move into the book of Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1 as we begin a series of sermons from this great book of Scripture. We read in the first verses of this book of Exodus, keeping all of this in mind, there are two communities of people. The one will oppress the other. Keeping this in mind, with the promise of God to Abraham, we move to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 1, where they are listed here the names of the sons of Israel who went down to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. We have Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. We know this from the book of Genesis. Then we read, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. We don't have this in our English translation, but in chapter 1 and verse 1, it starts with a single letter in the Hebrew text which links this book directly to the book of Genesis. We might translate this, this linking letter, which is far more profound than just the English translation, but we could translate it as and or as now. You don't usually start a story with the word and or now. Sometimes you may, but it's a now in the sense of connecting with what has gone before. 
Exodus connects directly to Genesis. It's not like a new book as much as it is a new chapter in a book. Now, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went down to Egypt. I'd like you to go back to Genesis 46 and verse 8 as we consider that first verse in Exodus. Genesis 46 and verse 8. We read here, these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants, who went down to Egypt. Direct link to chapter 1 and verse 1. Jacob's sons go down to Egypt. Now, Exodus 1.1, we're talking about Jacob's sons who go down to Egypt. The books hang together. They're directly connected. And so we must bring into the book of Exodus our understanding of God's promise to Abraham, which is why I read it again for the what, third week in a row or fourth week in a row, perhaps. We have this promise to Abraham that God will give him this land of Canaan and will give him a great offspring. Keep that in your mind as we read the book of Exodus. We also need to refer back to Genesis chapter 15, verses 4 through 6 and 13 through 16, where God says, I will give you this land, but first... I will send your people down into another land for 400 years. They will be there for 400 years. I'm telling you my project here, Abraham. My project is that the people of Canaan will become so corrupt in that 400 years that I will need to exterminate them. During those 400 years, the Israelites will grow to become a great people and will return to this land that I have promised to you, Abraham. All of this is laid out in Genesis prophetically. This same promise then is passed on to Isaac and to Jacob, and now Jacob with his sons comes down into Egypt. In verse 2, we read of the first four sons of Jacob's wife, Leah. In verse 3, the two sons that she had after, they're kind of linked in these three groups, and then the second son of Jacob's other wife, Rachel, Joseph, his first son, already in Egypt. Then we read the four sons of the two handmaids of Leah and Rachel, Dan and Naphtali, Rachel's handmaid, the mother of these, and then the two of Leah's handmaid, the next two names there in verse 4. These descendants of Jacob, number 70. Now, I don't know that probably the number of individuals that came. It may be that. It's not necessarily the case because as you would hear this word in the ancient Near East, 70 as a family means that your family is fulfilled, it's large, and it's complete. There are numerous references in the literature of that day to 70 to give you this sense. That misses us. We're Westerners and we want to know if it's 70, 71, or 69. That's very important to us. They would just count whatever heads they wanted to count and come up with 70 as a way of saying that your family was full and it was rich and it was complete. The pagan sources speak of the 70 sons of the gods, and the Jewish sources speak of the 70 sons of Gideon and the 70 sons of Noah. They clearly had more than 70 sons if you count all of their descendants. But it's a way of saying poetically that this is a family that is all that God, God's blessing rests upon it. In Genesis 10, we have the 70 nations in that table of nations. So this is the point here. Perhaps there were 70 descendants actually, in fact, there's indication that that may be the case, but the bigger point here is that Israel is realizing the promise of God in Genesis 12. 
God says to Abraham, I will make you a great people. And they are becoming a great people. Seventy go down into Egypt. And at verse 6, we see that they prosper there. There's great prosperity. There's great privilege in Egypt during the life of Joseph. But would the blessing of God continue upon the people of Israel after the death of Joseph and this generation? Verse 7 is the answer. The Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. If you hear those words, do they ring a bell? This kind of language. They were fruitful and they multiplied greatly brings to our mind the call of God, the blessing upon humanity. Doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28, go into all the world and fill it. Be fruitful and multiply. In Genesis chapter 9, with Noah, after he comes off of the ark, go into all the world, be fruitful and multiply. This is the blessing and commission of God, which always go together. And this is what is being realized in Jacob's family. He is filling the earth, in a sense. He is realizing the blessing of God. God is fulfilling His promise of a great offspring to Abraham. Didn't look that way in the early chapters of Genesis, did it? It didn't look like Abraham would have any children. And then on Genesis 22, it looked like he would need to take the life of his only son. But in all of this, he is faithful to God, and God fulfills his promise to Abraham, or is fulfilling it, as this nation expands. But then, times change. There's a dramatic change in leadership, which led to a great reversal in Israel's status, and the kingdom of man rages against the people of God, beginning at verse 8. We are to anticipate this from the book of Genesis. Here it comes. Here is the hostility. The people of God being oppressed. Verse 8, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, we remember that Joseph was highly feared and deeply respected as a leader in Egypt. It's really not important to this narrative to identify who this pharaoh is, who this king is, but he doesn't know Joseph. We know from Egyptian history that a minority group of Semitic peoples gained power in Egypt for a time, and this may answer a number of questions about this king. Why did he not know about Joseph? To be a king, to be a pharaoh of Egypt, you would know the history of your people. Why does he not know about Joseph? Secondly, why does he feel so threatened by this minority group? This doesn't sound like the Pharaoh of Egypt speaking out of fear for this group of people. And then it says that he deals shrewdly with Israel. Again, this does not sound like the Pharaoh of Egypt who ruled with absolute power as the incarnate son of the sun god, Ray. We notice also in verse 10 that there is a fear in the king's heart that Israel will leave the country. Whoever this king is, and if he was this one who came in from the outside and ruled for a period of time, whoever he is, it really is not an issue here with the text, or the text would give us his name. The text will give us the name of a couple of midwives. 
doesn't even give us the name of this king, so it's clearly not important as the work is written. But what is important in verse 10 is that this king fears that Israel will leave the country. Put this together with Genesis. We need to read Exodus in light of Genesis. Why this fear? God promised to give Canaan to Israel. Egypt was a temporary sojourn for Israel until the moral wickedness of the Canaanites reached its fullness. The point here is that the king is directly resisting the will of God. I don't think he knows this. It's unwitting resistance, but that is what he is doing. God has said, after 400 years, I will bring you back to the land. And this king says, no, we don't want them to leave. At verse 10, we also read language here that reflects back to Genesis. Don't you hear the echoes of Babel in verse 10? Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. There in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, there's this very similar similar language. Let's not spread throughout the world. Let's not honor the command of God to disperse. Let us stay here and build. Here again is the language of careful deliberation in a vain attempt to thwart God's will. Whether this king knows it or not, he is seeking to stop the promise of God. And his first plan against God is oppression by slavery. His initial attempt we find in verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Slave labor, was, was, slave labor was commonplace in Egypt. Slaves built canals to irrigate the land from the waters of the Nile. Slaves were used to build the pyramids of Egypt. They also built, as we see here, cities for Pharaoh. What is shocking here is that Israel was the victim of this oppressive institution. Israel's status has plummeted. The king apparently hoped to stifle Israel's vitality by subjecting her to the rigors of hard labor. We don't know exactly what he's thinking here. But as her forefather Joseph had fallen from the position of favored son and become a slave, so now this is fulfilled in the nation of Israel who leaves the great position of status in Egypt and becomes a slave nation. But when Satan oppresses, God blesses. And that is the point of verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. We can't lose that phrase. This powerful king is oppressing the people of Israel. However, God intervenes and blesses Israel in the midst of all of this suffering. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more the king resists the promise of God, the more God fulfills his promise. And so there is, I think we see here in the text, an intensification of the oppression. Middle of verse 12, So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. 
They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. We're not talking here about light servanthood. We're talking here about slavery in one of its worst examples. Husbands and fathers were wearied by the heavy toil they performed daily under the scorching heat of the Egyptian sun. Family relationships are strained to the breaking point as life is about nothing more than doing the work of Pharaoh and staying alive. The people of God are downtrodden. They are discouraged. Everything seems to be against Israel. But what does God do? He blesses in the midst of this suffering. He comes to the aid of His people. He is working out His purposes. No matter how hard they made the, the Egyptians made Israel's life, Israel continued to prosper as a people. God's blessing, God's promise was being fulfilled. And so we come to oppression plan number two, genocide. Genocide. Verse 15, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sifra and Pua, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The girls do not pose a military threat. They could also be taken as wives for Egyptian men. But by killing all the male infants of Israel, the king was acting again to thwart God's blessing on Abraham. God had spoken, I will make you a great nation. There will be kings who come from you, and you will return to the land of Canaan. It is yours. I give it to you, says God. Pharaoh, again, probably doesn't know it, but he's standing right in the way of God and saying, no, I will bring this people down. I will squash their prosperity. Kill the boys, he says to these Egyptian midwives. I, that's an interpretive point, whether they're Hebrew midwives or Egyptian midwives. There's a balance on both sides as to who they are. I kind of tend toward the idea that they may be Egyptian midwives for a couple of reasons. Probably, first of all, would be lead administrative midwives, not that two midwives could serve for all of these people of Israel. But probably Egyptian women, uh, though they are spoken here of as Hebrew midwives uh, in verse 15, but it's, the Hebrew reads literally midwives of the Hebrews. That is, they are Egyptian women assigned as midwives for God's people. We'll, more on that in a moment. But consider the horror of this situation. Israel is reeling. This is a terrible situation. It's kind of tough with narrative accounts when you know how they end. You're reading a fairy tale, and it's really getting scary, but you're just having a hard time getting the same buzz out of it because you know it all turns out well in the end. And there's a tendency for us to lose some of these ideas because we know where this all leads. Can you imagine in your own country an edict being passed down that all Christians 
boys need to be murdered in the hospital delivery room. It's a horrifying thought. Israel is under extreme oppression. She remains in slavery, but now this edict of killing the boys of Israel, it is a horrifying time. But, as with the slavery, I will oppress them with slavery, God blesses. I will oppress them by killing their boys. What happens? Verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. We see God's providential intervention here first in behalf of the Hebrew boys. We witness here this sweet providence of God that these two women fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. And Pharaoh doesn't like it, and he calls them into his office and says in verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? I think what comes here in verse 19 is really a hilarious deception. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. To paraphrase Reverend Childs, if all Israelite women gave birth before the midwives could reach them, why have any midwives? They don't have a job. They're simply a welcoming committee. The humor in it is that Pharaoh buys the story. The Israelites are growing so rapidly, he believes their women as a race have supercharged delivery powers. He believes what they're saying. And it is a sweet providence as Childs continues, and I quote, the frail resources of two women have succeeded in outdoing the crass power of the tyrant. My heart sings with that truth. Aren't you glad that God is not limited to armies? God can work through two ingenious women putting their heads together and coming up with a story to stifle the most powerful king on earth at that time. The frail resources of two women have succeeded in outdoing the crass power of the tyrant. We cannot take time to address if it was right for these women to lie. And that is really not the point of the narrative. I will admit that we cannot prove they lied. I suppose in one respect, I think there's, it's fairly clear. But there are those who actually argue that they are telling the truth. I think there's reasons not to believe that. But at any rate, the point of the narrative is not whether it's right to lie. Verse 17 is the point of the narrative. They feared God. Which is one reason I think that they may well be Egyptian midwives. It's unique that they fear God. They're not simply protecting their own. They are fearing God. That is unique. And what is more, that fits well if their identity is Egyptian, which again is just a conjecture at this point. But it fits well with what follows. Notice verse 20. Verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. God smiles upon the midwives, and Israel increases. Notice verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. 
What I hear there is the echo of Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. I think that's the point of these midwives having families. What, what the king wanted to crush in Israel, these women protected, and God blesses them for blessing Israel. Whatever their identity, the point is clear that God rewards their love for his people as he promised to do in Genesis 12. There is, again, with this second oppression, not as with slavery, so with genocide and intensification. In verse 22, the Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. This is no more a discussion with his officials behind closed doors. It's no longer a clandestine meeting with these two midwives. Now Pharaoh, frustrated, demands that all Egyptians drown every Israelite boy. It's a desperate plan. I don't know that there's a culture in the world where every single person would find that quite exciting. You find a Hebrew boy, you take him and drown him. Now there are certainly some Egyptians who were very happy to do so, but I would imagine that there's a very large percentage of them that really don't want to do that. Pharaoh is desperate. He doesn't know it now, but God is working and is working against him to thwart everything that he's doing. He's beginning to sense that something's wrong. I've tried to oppress them with slavery. I've tried to kill them. Nothing is happening. He goes for broke and calls everyone to kill every boy of Israel that they see to drown him in the Nile. What we see here is redemptive foreshadowing. We need to understand that God has put together the whole Bible. People didn't come together and just write a book here and there and they happened to sort of fit. God is writing the story. And so we have redemptive foreshadowing. Because God reigns supreme in heaven as the author of history, we can detect through time characteristics of His saving work. What He did here, He does today because He's the same God. Not always in exactly the same way, but you can see the foreshadowing. You can see the preparation for this. We refer to this as salvation history. God working His redemptive plan along similar themes in all ages. So we cannot miss this, that Pharaoh wants to use the Nile to claim the blood of the chosen people of God. And God will respond by filling Pharaoh's river with blood. Pharaoh wants to exterminate the holy offspring by killing all the boys. We cannot think but of years later another king who will kill the infant boys of Bethlehem and surrounding vicinity in an attempt to snuff out the life of Messiah. Matthew 2 and verse 16. In both instances, Israel weeps for an unspecified number of male victims. And in both instances, a deliverer escapes the king's wrath. One will escape death and find safety in the river of Egypt. The other will escape death and find safety in the land of Egypt. 
Both will return after the death of the king that sought his life to deliver God's people. In both cases, the Son of God will be called forth from Egypt. On the face of things, what we see is the powerful Pharaoh of Egypt against the vulnerable infant slaves. That's what we see on the face of it. It's not a fair battle. But there is an unseen battle being waged in the cosmic realm. What Pharaoh has unwittingly done is to instigate a duel with God. This will not end well for Pharaoh. He has stood in the face of God and said no. And God will stand and say yes. He doesn't realize it, but he has positioned himself to stop God's promise. And that isn't going to happen. It never does. In fact, Pharaoh's own edict will set in motion a series of events by which one of those Hebrew baby boys Pharaoh tries to kill will be used by God to crush the power of Egypt's army with a wave of his hand. And he will lead God's people to freedom. As we read this initial chapter of Exodus, it teaches us what the entire Bible teaches us, and that is that things are not always as they seem in this world. It would appear that the people of God are a small minority of oppressed and despised people. They don't run the world. And they've got nothing to do with where things are going. But that is not the truth of the matter. The truth is that they are God's people and God's will always conquers. In other words, to say it this way, you have to make a choice as to whose side you're on. There are these two communities of people. God will protect His people. It is important that you get on His side. Jesus put this very starkly in Matthew 7 where he said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And Jesus said clearly in chapter 14 and verse 6 of the book of John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This idea of two communities carries through to the New Testament and Jesus says you're either with me or you're against me. You're either on the side of the people of God or you are not. This is the message of the Bible. Forget the popular message of so many Christian churches these days where God just sort of mushes everybody together and brings them all in and loves them all the same and everybody's finding their journey their own way and let's throw in a little piece here about who Jesus is. That's not how the New Testament unfolds. That's not how the Bible unfolds because that's got nothing to do with the mind of God. There are two ways and only two ways. There are two communities and only two communities. You're either with Him or you're against Him. And you may not think in your mind that you're in utter rebellion against God, but if you're not with Him, you are. 
Pharaoh had no idea, I don't believe, that he was fighting against the promises of God. And I am sure that there are many unbelievers in this world who have no sense that they are resisting God and His will. If you're not in His camp, if you're not with His people, you're against Him, and you need to change sides. We learn secondly here of a satanic strategy. We can see not only here in this text, but broadening out to understand Scripture as a whole, there seems to be a twofold strategy of Satan. The first is to integrate God's people with the world around, and the second is to segregate them and there to crush them. The integrationist strategy is God's people are diluted, particularly through intermarriage, through cultural assimilation and the like. Genesis 6, Genesis 34. This is the strategy that God uses, or rather that Satan uses, to dilute, to integrate, to weaken the people of God. But the other strategy is to segregate them within the culture, to set them out as a people. If you're watching our world and our setting and our culture, it seems to me we're moving from one to the other. We may not get there in our lifetime, who knows, but we seem to be moving from an integrationist situation to more and more of a segregationist situation. There is more and more ridicule that is coming on the people of God. Now, it's moving slowly. It's taking its time. But we see these strategies working together. He integrates them with the world so that they cease to have their unique identity, or he sets them apart so that they can be crushed. That's where Israel is in this time. Where are we? I think to a large degree we are in an integrationist culture. We are, to go back to the ancient terms, in Canaan. We're in a place where the Canaanites throw open their arms and say, please join us in our way. Come on in. Join the community. Be with us. That's our world here in the West. We had a man who spoke here last Sunday night who's on the other end of the scale, isn't he? In China, he spoke very much about a segregationist strategy as he talked about house churches that are meeting in clandestine ways. Remember his story about the guard that fell asleep and how the whole school moved in the night past the guard to get away from what? From oppression, from persecution. This is Satan's other strategy. God delivered Israel from the integrationist culture of Canaan so that he could bring her up as a distinctive people. But when the distinctive people find themselves in a segregationist culture, they're going to get stomped on. That is always the way that it is. And you can look through church history, you can look through world history and see that where the people of God are set aside in a segregationist way, they're crushed, they're oppressed, they're opposed. They're never just left alone. Not in the big scale. And so, in the segregationist culture of Egypt, Israel suffers oppression eventually. But God is always at work in both situations to glorify His name through His people. We might ask as we look at these people and their suffering in Exodus 1, what does this really have to do with us? We are not a suffering church. Well, let's remember this. Their job was to stand firm in the face of persecution. The persecuted church today, that is their job, to stand firm in the face of persecution, to remain a holy people.
people and not to let go of the faith. But listen, under the influence of accommodation, we naturally long not only for the world's cool acceptance, but for her genuine approval. And we are sorely tempted to make unfaithful adjustments to secure it. We have as much a challenge in our setting as the man had who visited us here last Sunday night. He is in a segregationist culture. We are in in an integrationist culture. We've got our own duel with Satan. And it is a hard fight. The only antidote is to so love God that his smile supersedes every satanic temptation on our affections. Only genuine love for God will equip the believer to withstand the sweet poison of accommodation. And while the rewards may seem few, they really are not. Not here, and not at the dawn of the new age, when faith becomes sight and Satan becomes history. We need to press on as God's people in the world where he's placed us. On that glorious day, there will be no more crushing faith. There will be no more diluting of the faith. There will only be victorious faith, unadulterated and forever free. And this reminds us along another line that God's name is always bound up with his people. This is true in our loyalty to Him, but it is also true in the outworking of His purposes in this world. He binds up His name with His people. God glorifies His name through His people. Jesus suffered, and so will His people. Matthew 5, He said, Then as you receive this oppression, blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You're blessed. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You enter in with the people of God and you get crushed. You are oppressed. Rejoice. You're on the right side. Rejoice. God is your God. This is the way it is. In this world, says Jesus. So let me just bring it back around to say then that the book of Exodus reveals the character of God and his saving love for his people in the midst of an oppressive world. Understand this God is never arbitrary, he is never whimsical. God can be trusted to act today as he has acted in the past. I have no reason, no desire to stand and draw from this passage any point without that point. This is not just a story about God in the past. Isn't it wonderful what God did back there? This is a story about you and me because God never changes. The God of Scripture is our God and He works in the same ways. All seems lost for Israel, but God runs history. He will act in behalf of His people through their suffering. And the people of Scripture, the people of God, have noticed this and understood this through the ages. This is why when Israel returns from 
Babylonian captivity, hundreds of years later, she continues to refer back to the language of Exodus. God will bring His people back to Israel. There will be a second exodus from the nations, leaving Babylon and coming back to Jerusalem, Isaiah 43. And notice how this is how it all ends. There's a connection, an integration with what is at the end of Scripture and what is at the beginning of Scripture. Go to Revelation chapter 12. We can't miss the parallels here. We have Israel under oppression and under genocide in Egypt being delivered by God. That's Exodus chapter 1 and following. We come to the end of the Bible. And in Revelation 12, just ask yourself this question. Does this have anything to do with the deliverance of Israel in Egypt? Notice the parallels in this apocalyptic literature. Revelation 12, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and, and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child. The moment it was born, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to His throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. And the chapter goes on from the mouth of the serpent, verse 15. There spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent, verse 16. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. The connections between Revelation 12, which we must just leave sit and offer no explanation at this point. But these parallels are unmistakable. Because the God who starts salvation history is the God who ends salvation history. And He will, from the beginning to the end, protect His people. There will be oppression to the very end of time for God's people, but always, through it all, God will protect His people. How we apply this individually, perhaps we must start by saying don't worry too much about it. In this sense, our suffering is not all about us. We really struggle with this in the West. With our individualistic orientation toward life, we think of all suffering as all about us. God is interested about our suffering, and He is very personable in it all. But it's not all about us. We must see the big picture and see the greatness of God. Israel's suffering in Egypt was part of God's plan from the very beginning. Never 
in the life of God's people will suffering ever, ever be meaningless. It's real. It's painful. It's hard. Sometimes we're confused by it as to what the meaning could ever be, but there will always be a purpose in the end because our suffering is part of living in the community of God. Think big. Think large as you deal with individual suffering. Against the backdrop of slavery, God was moving to display His glory to Israel. And against the backdrop of the suffering of His people, whether it be persecution or simply suffering in a world of sin, God displays His glory and He will bring it all to close. In His time, in His way, this is no isolated incident in Exodus 1. This is who God is. And if you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then this is your destiny. If you are not, come to his family. Join his people. It's a dangerous place to go, but it's the only safe place in the universe, both now and forever. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you that you are our help in ages past, as well as our hope for years to come. We ask that you would protect us as our God and guide us, and our hearts are heavy and we pray out and cry out, Father, for the, those who are oppressed as your people throughout this world unfairly misused, unfairly ostracized, sometimes crushed. We pray, Father, for their deliverance. And we know, may we not join those who are so confused as to why governments don't come in and save them. This world sits in the lap of Satan and likes it that way. We can't ultimately look to governments to save your people. We ultimately, Father, look to you. And we pray, God, that you would crush the walls of oppression that surround your people. That you would open up countries that are stifling the gospel of Christ. That you would bring kings and rulers and presidents and prime ministers to their knees and that you would vindicate your people. We pray to you, God, to carry out the purpose of your salvation plan. But Lord, we also submit in this moment to know that we do not know the end from the beginning. We do not know all of your purposes. So we ask that you'll protect your people in the midst of oppression. And for those of us here, Father, may we be aware that we too face the wrath of Satan. May we resist this world as we should. And I pray, Father, that you would work in us and through us to know of your saving plan for all ages and to hide in you, to rest in you for our saving grace. If there are any among us who have not come to that place of seeing Jesus as the ultimate and only refuge for saving grace, I ask that they'd run into his arms today 
for those of us who have seen Him in this light and embraced Him by, in saving faith. I ask, Father, that our faith would deepen and grow and that we would understand Your purposes for us in Christ and cling to the promise of Your salvation. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.